This is Game Theory, a podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making, hosted by me, Nick, and my brother, Chris. In this episode, it takes about an hour. A few years ago, in the early part of the 21st century, more humans lived in urban settings than in rural settings. That may seem obvious, but it was the first time in human history that was true. Cities have been on the rise for centuries. And with the rise of cities comes new problems, including travel. Unlike a rural setting where a farmer or rancher wakes up and is on the job site, an urbanite typically needs to leave his or her home to relocate themselves to their place of business. That could be a bank or an office or a restaurant or any number of other locations. The time it takes to commute to work is something we all complain about and aim to fix, whether you live in New York City or Tulsa, Oklahoma. But no matter what we do, invest in public transit, build bigger roads, or even move offices and homes, It seems like there's no way to cut the commute to fewer than one hour. The observation is called Marchetti's Constant. It's fueled urban planning for a few decades now and is helping to promote the rise of what are called 15-minute cities, where everything one needs is located about 15 minutes away. But are all commutes the same? Does working from home make this better? Can the one hour per day dredge be avoided? Welcome to episode 95 of Game Theory, a podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making with our new tagline, where boring is hot, and we are still feeling the effects mentally, emotionally, physically, digestively of Thanksgiving as we record this, and yeah, you, you came down to the old abode and had ourselves a gay old time. Yeah, we did. We did no work, including... Yeah. On this podcast. None. Zero. Put in a lot of effort to judging the turkeys. Mm. And for the record, the deep fried turkey we had was delicious, but yes. it was dry. <laughs> and I think I think it was more flavorful, but it was it was noticeably drier than the roast turkey. So it's it, it honestly is too tough to call. I think I'm gonna have to try and we, have that contest again. We did a southern ish creole ish brine, which is the best brine I've ever had. Deep frying turkeys is of course is a a cheat code for turkeys. It makes them salty. It makes the skin really good. But it was, uh, yeah, it was good to have two turkeys, big unit, 12 of us congregating in the in the south to make things happen. Went to a theme park, did a lot of stuff, a lot of moving parts um, for the Thanksgiving, which is really intense. But I do, we do have some game theory stuff to catch up on before we get into our topic, which is about commutes. People love talking about commuting and if it's good or if it's bad or how it works, et cetera. The one thing we need to talk about is how... Black Friday uh, appears to have been, at least culturally, an enormous dud. And not only that, huge videos on TikTok and other platforms making the rounds of kind of showing Black Friday is not a thing. It's just a marketing ploy, and they just use a new sticker on a lot of the stuff. Yeah, I wonder if, if Gen Z is in this weird kind of spot where they think that they're like vanquishing the bad habits of generations past because stuff like black Friday is dead. And of course it's called black Friday because of this rampant consumerism and it's like the worst parts of society. And if you go look, go look up old videos of black Friday, or if you listen to our previous episode on black Friday, which we re-aired last year, 
and originally recorded a couple of years ago, you can see that like it's it's not it's not a healthy part of society. You know, there's there, there's something to be said for the value of consumerism, and I've said it in recent episodes. But yeah, it's just a it's a really ugly experience, I think. But it, it is a pretty critical component to the holiday shopping season, and it's just kind of dead. And I think COVID had almost 100% to do with that. But now TikTok can make stuff much more prevalent to people. And the evidence that Black Friday is dying is pretty convincing, I think. There are, I, I, didn't, I don't think I saw a single like rush on a store like you would see in previous years where yeah. it's like doorbusters. And I think that also is affected by the fact that Black Friday sales is now like, it's like a season. So stores will like, oh yeah, Black Friday sales are starting in like mid-November, or we're starting Black Friday sales right after Halloween. Like, well, it's not Black Friday then. It's just some things are discounted lightly, and you don't really get that much better deals. And Cyber Monday is not a thing anymore because almost everybody does all their shopping online forcibly through the pandemic, or because yeah. Amazon is so much cheaper and better than it was in the 2000s when that co- term was coined. I think uh, I think Gen Z needs to pump the brakes a little bit with taking credit for killing Black Friday. <laughs> and re- recognize that there's no generation better at killing trends than millennials. The first of all, in my brain, Black Friday was super popular as like a fun thing that people did Generation X and it was really helpful. People would buy mostly it seemed like they would just buy stuff that was cheaper for themselves and for their families, uh, like TVs and things. Just you could upgrade your life by getting something on Black Friday. But then it got crazy and it kept going. And of course, we know game theory is like a negative prisoner's dilemma thing where they were losing money opening earlier and earlier, but they would lose more money if they didn't participate. And so everybody hated it. And then the pandemic happened and nobody liked it. And then the p- pandemic unhappened and people were like, let's go out and do stuff. And then now that the dust has settled, everyone's like, that's stupid. Let's just watch the conveniently timed Amazon Prime football game that takes place on Black Friday. Yeah, that that trend has has completely <laughs> changed, and, and you're right. It, it it does come back to the, this game theory question. Like the only way to win Black Friday, if you're one of the big retailers, is to not play. And I think they've kind of realized that now. And it's like, well, okay, we can just we we can change this day into a selling season and take more orders online, and we don't have to have stores open and people working on Thanksgiving Day so that they can get ready for like doorbusters to crowd the store. Like, we can we can kind of do away with that trend. So the 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 upheaval that came with the pandemic, I think, is uh, a rare case of welcome across all society for Black Friday. Yeah, I think so too. I also have something else. I have something else interesting for you. Um, in world, is it European qualification or Euro qualifiers? There's a major. Oh no, we're talking about soccer. Game yeah, right? but it's pretty. Oh god, it's pretty funny. So it's the European Championship. It's the Euros, right? So the best club in Europe. You have to qualify similar to the World Cup, and they group countries, and you've got to do a bunch of stuff. And there are multiple routes to qualification. If you beat the teams in your group, um, the top two teams or something qualify. And I'm not going to get into the the nitty gritty of this. We could, I suppose, Thank but it's just that. a really yeah, it's a really unique situation. But for whatever reason, there in the qualification stage, there is a situation where the Republic of Ireland they will not be qualifying out of their group, so they need to go through an alternative route, like a basically like a loser's bracket of other teams that didn't qualify to see who can get into the European Championships. But their group stage is not over. So they are playing the Netherlands, who's in their group, which is tough for them. The Netherlands is significantly better, one of the dark horses to, to win the whole thing and, and was very close to winning the World Cup outright this year. So they are playing them. But regardless of who their opponent is, they are in a situation with the UEFA rules where it is literally better to lose. 
and it's incredibly if convoluted. I, if I were Ireland, it, yeah. well, is it, it, will the organization be penalized if they just don't like play anybody? If well, that's the like weird situation is that people are like, don't worry about it, and like, well, you're gonna try to win. They get out of the UEFA and all of these organizations have a get out of jail free card here because they're playing the Netherlands and it doesn't matter because like if they tried their hardest they will I mean if they, they would probably haven't beat the Netherlands in a game that the Netherlands was trying to win ever would be my guess but if not ever like maybe close to ever so they get out of jail free for that but I don't it seemed like everyone was just like yeah don't worry about it and people had pointed out that this is a possibility an incredibly remote possibility years ago when they changed the rules but now here we are. It's not like the situation in that happens in, it seems like, every pro sport every, every couple of years in the United States where you look at your opponent and it would be better for both of you if you tied. This is not that at all. This is like it is actively better. It's not a competitive where there's just no need to try to win. It's like we are actively trying to lose. It's a completely different thing. Yeah, we talked about that before. That was one of our early episodes, I think, yeah. when if you want to deliberately set up a tie, it's like, okay, if we both don't play to win... Then we both stand to gain, but it, 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 I feel like it's rare that somebody's best interest is served by outright losing. You, I feel like you got to be in a pretty bad shape as like a soccer organization to get to that point. But I mean, it's Ireland; it's a small country. They're playing against large continental European powers. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what sports Ireland is really great at compared to their European counterparts. But what a weird, what a weird, interesting situation to find themselves in where they was just like no no we'll forfeit oh no all of our players came down sick with the same non-contagious but debilitating disease that's going to be cured a couple hours after the game right that's what i'm saying i mean i don't know why you wouldn't just forfeit and just call their bluff on this you'd save the risk of course is that there are injuries and fatigue and things like that's part of the deal you give your and then it, it puts the Netherlands in a weird spot too. And this is how you would lose. You accidentally win the game. If you're Ireland is the Netherlands is like, well, we're not incentivized to win. Why? That's true. Yeah. But what do we get out of this? So it's a really kind of a strange game. It's anti-competitive is the opposite of game theory. It's just like, this is why we need to put ourselves in situations where winning is rewarded and losing is, is punished. And those are two different things. You oftentimes in sports, they're happening simultaneously, but what a strange, strange thing to be happening in professional sports. Just can't believe it. I'm just I'm relieved at times like this that I just I cannot bring myself to care about soccer. This is the last conversation I hope to ever have about soccer, really. But it's definitely the last one I'm going to have for the rest of this year. We'll see that I've said that you're going to bring up soccer every episode we record from now until the end of the year. Yeah, we'll see if I have anything to say about that. Okay, so here we go. The new tagline boring is hot and Part of this tagline is just that, remember, be boring, be patient, fight through every day, et cetera. It's, it's okay, it's sensationalism, all of that. So we are going to talk about something that everybody loves to discuss and is on their high horse about with regard to this new work from home thing and urban planning and a bunch of other stuff. It is essentially a mathematic representation of how much time we spend commuting and how it seems like it is an unsolvable puzzle. Yeah, that's right. We're talking about... What I think is one of the most interesting and kind of, uh, I, I, I don't, I don't want to say disorienting, but it, I, I definitely paused in my mind when I, when I saw this. We're talking, to, we're talking about Marchetti's constant. So I'm just going to read quote here directly from Wikipedia just so that we're all on the same page here. Marchetti's constant is the average time spent by a person for commuting each day. So you're thinking, hmm, 
Marchetti's constant. I know what constant means. It means it's the same. It means it's unchanging. And I know that I work with coworkers in an office building or at a construction site or at a coffee shop. And I know we don't live in the same place. So how can it be that there's a constant that describes the length of time that it takes for us to get to work? So elaborating on this, the value of Marchetti's constant is approximately one hour or half an hour for a one-way trip. So in other words, if you're allocating somebody's time during the day, like what are the different tasks that you spend using for, or what, what, what are the amounts of time that you use for each task during the day? Right. The amount of time that you can allocate to a working person on an average working day for commuting is approximately an hour. Figure six to eight hours for sleep, I guess. I don't know. Maybe an hour for eating meals if they eat three squares a day, eight hours for work, whatever else. But the, the commuting value is, for some reason, a constant. It's, it's, so it's named after this dude, Cesare Marchetti. And, I'm, of course, we're probably mispronouncing Marchetti. It's probably yeah, Marchetti, probably. but yeah. we're going to say Marchetti. All righty. And uh, Cesare actually attributed this constant to uh, another analyst, uh, this, uh, this engineer named uh, Yaakov Zahavi. And it's, it, it's an important concept in urban planning and trying to design efficient modes of transportation to get people from A to B. And the, the fact that people spend roughly the same amount of time commuting basically wherever they are is just so fascinating to me. And I, I know you were interested in this one when I first suggested it. And I just, it, it's, it's kind of surprising, but I, I think it says a lot of things about game theory. I think it says a lot of things about like social planning and what kinds of, uh, what kinds of effects technologies have on the way people live. Just a really interesting concept to me. Yeah. So the, the, the part of this that kind of blew my mind was that unless you have a job where you can kind of guarantee you're going to live close to it, you really can't prepare to, like you can't prep a city or create a city where there will be no travel time to work. And with every minute, I mean, we understand how exponential growth works. It's not necessarily exponential, but with every minute, you can do this crazy stat where you're like, well, that's like five days a year you spend on the road, which does suck. And for, for me, it's more about what you're doing that day. I, I moved two exits down on the interstate and it changed about seven to 10 minutes each way. And that mattered to me more than the like day and a half that it added up to in a year, which is a really weird way to think about things in bulk anyway. Like this is, you spend this many time, this much time per year doing that. Like, well, no, but what is your, what is your day and your week like? Like how, how does it, how does it set in? Now, the other thing, the thing to me, like I, like I said, is that unless you move close to your job and plan on staying there, there's almost no way to prevent a commute from happening that is long, that is shorter than like 20 minutes. It's almost impossible. Yeah, it, re it really is. And it, it, it's, it, we'll get into kind of like the historical and technological reasons for it. But it, 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 you said something about the, uh, like thinking about time spent in aggregate. Well, I, I was just, I, I flew down to your place for Thanksgiving. And so I was on airplanes recently. And uh, if you think of that, like, okay, your standard, like what, like 737 or whatever, 747, that has rows of six in each row there's like the aisle that separates the three seats from each other and there's like i don't know 30 rows or something ballpark you can say there's like 200 people on a plane so if you think about like as you're deplaning every one second that a person spends trying to get their stuff together on the back before they get off the plane represents 200 additional seconds or several minutes 
for the people at the back. So it's like if everybody takes five seconds, then we're looking at, I mean, substantial amounts of time for, for the people who are sitting back there waiting to deplane. So you wonder like, why does it take so long to get off the plane? It's like, well, when you have a lot of people who are working in series and they, like you can't all get your stuff at the same time and go, uh, it really, all that time really adds up. And so if you think about commuting during the course of a year, if you add an additional minute on, let's say you go 50 weeks a year, you get two weeks of vacation, you're doing your standard office job, you get an extra two minutes. I mean, there's there, there's an extra 100 minutes a year that you're spending sitting in a car. I mean, it's over an hour in a car for just for just a two minute increase in your in your commute time. And I, I think that's I, I think it's like it's hard to notice that at a small scale. But when you start to think about it in aggregate, then it's like, oh, man, am I not? Am I not paying enough attention to my commute? Like maybe I should find a faster route or maybe I should drive a little bit more recklessly. And so I, I think that's a that's a real significant problem. But this this Marchetti's constant kind of like puts a cap <laughs> on that where it's like, well, you know, obviously everybody's individual circumstances are different, but pretty much most people most of the time are dedicating about a half hour or about an hour a day total uh, to their commutes. And the, the crazy thing to me is that that's been true for like forever. And that, that, that just blows my mind with how good transportation technology is compared to like, I don't know, hundreds of years ago. Like that's, that's always been true. It's always been about an hour a day. People spend getting to and from their workplace, which is crazy to me. Yeah. So let's go back to how he figured this out. This is what 1934 ish is when he started looking at this and we started getting into urban planning and whatnot. Is that right? Yeah, this author named Lewis Mumford uh, actually described this uh, this constant amount of time that people spend allocating for for commuting. Uh, he wrote in 1934. He wrote this book called Technics and Civilization, and he he's actually attributing this to uh, to Bertie Russell. Which, by the way, uh, Bertrand Russell famously uh, kind of reinvented mathematics and addressed some paradoxes of set theory. So this is like a, this is a person who knows what he's talking about. Mathematically speaking, like he literally proved that one plus one equals two using symbolic logic in a way that would like get around some set theory, uh, some apparent paradoxes and set theory. So this is like a guy who fundamentally understands mathematics better than like basically everyone who's walked the earth, except for like Leibniz and Newton. So Bertrand Russell noted that each improvement in locomotion. So like, moving from feet to horses, horses to carts, carts to you know, auto automobiles, to buses, to public transport, whatever else. Each improvement in locomotion has increased the area over which people are compelled to move. So what that means is a person who would have had to spend half an hour to walk to work a century ago, mm -hmm. and this is in 1934, so think like early 19th century, like 1830s, a person who would have had to spend a half hour to walk to work a century ago still spends a half an hour to get to his destination because the contrivance that would have enabled him to save time had he remained in his initial situation effectively cancels out the gain. So what that means is if my walk to work is 30 minutes and I suddenly get a car, then all of a sudden it's not the case that I'm like, oh, well, now I'm only going to spend five minutes getting to work. I hop in my car, I drive that short distance, I park, and I'm good to go. Now what it means is like, well, I have a car. I can afford to live a lot farther away from work than I originally did. Just yesterday, I went to a little coffee shop near my neighborhood in, in D.C., and it's it's about a 25-minute walk, give or take, you know, depending on how much I'm enjoying the fall foliage or uh, trying to match the pace of cars that are walking by and, like, subtly trying to race them on foot. And so if you figure 25 minute walk, you know, at a leisurely pace, it's like, 
I don't know, a mile and change or so. But if I had a car, I would be like embarrassed to drive such a short distance. Like unless it's snowing or raining outside or unless I have a schedule to keep or I'm going somewhere else afterward or I'm like injured or something. It's like, okay, I don't really need to hop in the truck to go like a mile and change so that I can grab a cup of coffee. That's not really necessary to me, especially because I happen to live in a walkable city. So what, what, what that translates to is like, well, you know, if, if today I want to spend 25 minutes going to chase down a cup of coffee, instead of walking, like maybe I can, I don't know, drive to the next town over, or maybe I can go to a completely different neighborhood, or maybe I can go four or five miles and spend the same amount of time and get a cup of coffee in a different location. And so if you map that onto your commute times, now I'm not like obliged to live in the city where I work or live in the exact like town center within a walkable distance. Now I can afford to go out into the suburbs. And now I can afford to maybe live out of town a little ways and hop on the interstate, drive really fast and, and, and use the same amount of time to get where I wanted to go, except I'm a little bit freer in the sense that I'm not really as chained down to work because I can get there using technology. And I, I just think that's the most fascinating thing. Yeah. So it's interesting to me that this has been sort of so historically speaking, let's back up a little bit. Cities are not where humans lived. And now this is kind of a weird thing for us to think about and conceptualize. And this is why I think the Electoral College is kind of an interesting and important idea, is that there are two ways to live. You could debate politics. You can debate whether there are two ways to live in human history, essentially. One is in an urban setting, and two is in a rural setting. Now, we have a lot of people that, like myself, misconstrue the idea of being rural with just being in a small urban sitting. For example, where we're from in Wyoming, that's urban. Wyoming is one of the most urban states in America. They're just small towns. You think it's rural because it's sparsely populated, but that's not true. Being rural means not living in an incorporated city, right? And then in the fir- for the first time in human history, like in our lives, I think it was like 2016, 17, 18, somewhere in there, for the first time in human history, globally, more people lived in cities than lived in rural communities. Now, this has been a, had been a trend that had been happening for some time. It meant that us as a species were moving away from an agrarian society where we food was the most precious resource to one where things like energy was the most precious resource. Financial instruments were the most precious resource. And now like the most coveted resource is data, I think, is the most valuable thing that exists. Regardless, for those kinds of things, people congregated in these cities, and these cities propel upwards and upwards and upwards, and they essentially can't they can't keep up with everything, and that's where you get commute times. That there's a joke about L.A. and Atlanta, where oftentimes you're in L.A. and you're two hours away from L.A. Like that's that's a thing, right? But in the the older, I know, right? That's a that's a classic. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, no, so, that's, that, that's a good joke. And everybody that is like has kind of like a little <laughs> yeah. bit of a tongue in cheek disdain for this. It's like, oh yeah, well Atlanta's two hours away from Atlanta. Like, haha, that's really clever. But you know, really, in a lot of ways, you kind of are because that's just how traffic goes and that's what like the transit infrastructure allows you to do. I mean, it's just, it's harder to get around to places. Yeah, it really is. So this guy, Carlos Moreno in 2016 came up with this idea of urban planning called the 15 minute city. Now this is essentially an idea that um, here's, I'm reading the headline of a, of a column that just came out like hours ago as we record this. If the U.S. wants more 15-minute cities, it should start in the suburbs, as in create a city out in the suburb of the the normal city. The problem with a lot of cities is that there are desirable things 
in the suburbs. And so maybe make, so for example, I think of um, Philadelphia is a great example. We have one enormous mass transit thing. It's called the main line. It's made fun of in a lot of places where the bougie people live. It's essentially one big train. It's got some little tentacles here or there, but it's one big train that runs east to west or I guess southeast to northwest. And it takes the people into the city center for their work. It had been running, I don't know, I think since like the 30s or something, and maybe even a little longer. But the idea is that the problem is that work is now no longer not the only amenity that these people want to access in, in city center Philadelphia. They want to go out. They want to go to the ball game, et cetera. The idea of a 15-minute city is how many things outside of work can you put into the suburbs, including work, so that no matter where you are in Philadelphia or Boston or Seattle or Detroit, everything is 15 minutes away and that you don't catch yourself in a situation where you're 45 55 minutes out. And this is the Marchetti's constant, right? Where no matter what, you're kind of limited both, I'm capped on both ends. And part of this constant is that people don't want to go more than an hour, but they also have to go a minimum amount of time. Yeah, so it's, it, it, this 15-minute city concept is kind of butting up against Marchetti's constant. It's like, okay, well, if you if you dedicate a half hour one way to take a trip to go to work, well, the 15-minute city is saying, well, if we design things well enough, if we allocate resources to public transport exp- infrastructure, or if we supply stuff like bikes or those little e-scooters or whatever else and build things densely enough with the correct zoning, then in theory, no location that you want to go is farther than a 15-minute walk, bike ride, or public transit ride. And you're right. That includes th- more things than work. That includes like other amenities or entertainments or other services like healthcare and, and whatever else. So it's an interesting concept. But first of all, like I mean, Marchetti's constant is like, well, what, what, what do you have to say about this? So, so I'm, I'm trying to understand what the, what the idea is. Who was, who was the guy that you were, that you mentioned that was like writing about the 15 minute city? So the guy that coined the, the guy that coined the idea and the guy that wrote the column for the Atlantic or the Washington post, one of those two, obviously, of course, of course (laughs) it was the Atlantic or the Washington post. Of course it was Carlos Moreno, M O R E N O. Um, it was, so here's the direct passage from, the Atlantic or the Washington Post. They're interchangeable, if you ask me. I think by the font, I'm going to go WAPO. (laughs) Conceived in 2016 by Carlos Moreno, the 15-minute city imagines putting, quote, humans in their well-being as the main purpose of urban organization. So this means that the idea is to promote sustainability and health by reducing car dependency and increasing physical activity. So there's not a lot of walkable... There's not a lot of walkability in the suburbs. There is a lot of walkability in densely populated urban areas because cars are a big hindrance. And that, that's sort of the idea. Yeah. So by by making less space, like basically making cities hostile to automobile traffic, like individual automobile traffic, you create room for other things like protected bike lanes or like dense walking areas of like social or uh, commercial centers in town or I guess, social venues or, or, or whatever else. And then on top of that, to get to things that are farther away or like different neighborhoods or maybe the healthcare district or whatever in this 15-minute city, you supply more fast-moving, high-volume public transit so people can hop on a train and get within a five-minute walk of their doctor's office or whatever the case is. So it, it's it's an interesting concept. And, it, and like you said, like the, the key... The key contention here is that, well, the, the the main goal is to make life better for everybody. And so human well-being is at the center of the design. And by removing the amount of time that people have to take to travel, we can improve their quality of life because that means more things are more accessible and that makes people happier and better connected and all this kind of stuff. So on the one hand, 
you do have an argument, I think, from the social capital point of view. And I think you know what book I'm about to start talking about here. No, Christmas one. Yeah, well, to those of you who are new to the program, I highly recommend that you read Bowling Alone mm. by David Putnam. He owes this Phenomenally interesting book. So the, the basic thesis of that book deals with this kind of social connectivity. And he's saying that right now America is less socially connected, less has less social capital than it has ever had. And it's, it's been on a steady decline since 1968. And it's just, it, it, it's getting worse. He offers some suggestions and solutions and stuff like that. But when, when he was exploring some of the causes, like why is it that people are involved in less in fewer organizations or spending less time volunteering or are have fewer associates or personal friendships or different organizations in their lives what what's causing that he, you know there's a lot of really rigorous sociological work that went into this but his thesis was like basically in the 80s and 90s Americans pretty much stopped doing anything socially bought a bunch of TVs and moved to the suburbs and just started sitting on their couch and watching TV in the evenings. And a big part of that was moving to the suburbs. And now it's like, well, okay, what, what the consequence of improving one station in life is and being able to afford a house for a single family home, as opposed to having to like rent a unit or buy a condo in a shared building and being able to buy a larger, more expensive car that can get you from A to B and haul your family around that individual Liberty has incentivized people to get away from stuff that leads to more social capital, more social connectivity. So that's on the one hand, there's, there, there are social consequences to that. Then on the other hand, not everybody wants to live in the type of city that's described right. in this 15-minute city concept. I mean, y- you got to think there there must be incentives. There must be motivations. There must be reasons that so many people start out moving to a city in an early career for, like, I don't know, to pick your white-collar job and going to work in an office and putting in the grind and getting their first 401k and all that, you know, all that good stuff. There has to be a reason that so many people move from that in their 20s and whatever to moving to the suburbs in their 30s and getting out of their apartments and moving to quieter neighborhoods and being a little bit farther from all the action. And I think, you know, there, there are a lot of different causes and everybody's situation is different. But I think at a basic level, I, people just don't want to live the way that you have to live in a 15 minute city. I mean, you have to put up with hot, like with more abundant crime and don't even get me started on crime rates. I'm not talking about the number of possible victims. I'm talking about there is more crime that occurs in places with more people. That's just how it is. But then you also have to deal with stuff like more traffic and congestion, which theoretically the 15 minute city is meant to resolve. Mm. You have to deal with more general noise, more general activity, more proximity to neighbors, a little bit less privacy, a little bit less space. You have to live in a smaller domicile and so the the trade-off for this higher level of social connectivity and this this alleged improvement in everybody's health and well-being like well you also have to kind of be in and around people all the time and you know the 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 existence of the suburbs like the boom of the suburbs in the 70s through the 90s i mean that ought to tell you that maybe not everybody really wants to live that way with with their neighbors right up next to them sharing a wall and maybe people want the freedom and and the space to carve out their own place and if it means getting to their work in a car instead of in a crowded train or riding a bike 15 minutes away well you know maybe that's a trade-off that people are willing to make and so we're just kind of at a loss here yeah and that's i think the the weird thing about this to me is so much of it has to do with taste and what people 
are willing to put up with and what they're willing to want to do. I think that like part of living in a city is all of the excitement and you're willing to sacrifice this thing or that. And there are better public stuff, even in dilapidated cities in this United States, no disrespect, San Francisco, Portland, Detroit, Baltimore, that aren't doing so hot, it's still more likely you're going to have a better healthcare situation, better first responders. And you think in a small town, oh, it'll be better. But there's like a medium sized town out there, 50 to 100,000 people where it's kind of worse than a city. The crime is higher. There are less there. You're less likely to have support. There aren't a ton of investigative resources. It's just kind of a little bit more dangerous. So we know about means and medians and modes on this particular podcast that will have data to kind of fool you. But at the end of the day, it's what you, what you want to care about. It's not a surprise that people live on coastlines and in warm weather. We need water and we, you know, can just survive better in crops and food and stuff and businesses thrive better in warmer weather. That's just a fact. Look at China is the same way. Russia is the same way. You can tell where the people live by where it's warm and where the water is. It's totally, it's totally reasonable. The weird thing to me is that you are now having cities specifically in places like Florida, Tennessee, uh, Texas, Wyoming, kind of where they can't keep up with demand because the economy isn't local. It's global. That's global and local. So because you you can work from home, the residents aren't necessarily stimulating the economy in the same way or are they? There's not a physical location. So are people that live 20 minutes away from a major municipality, even in a suburb, or are they in this weird little mini semi-rural bubble? Yeah, that's what, is it, what, what was the word you said? Glocal? Glocal. I got that from a George Clooney movie with Anna Kendrick. It's a global and local. Oh. Our global must become local. Is it is that up in the air? Yes, it's great. The one great where he's got to fly around and, and fire, fire people. people. Yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah. What a job. Well, actually, you know that that movie is kind of a good example of, of the yes. sort of thing that we're talking about here. Correct. I mean, the the ubiquity of air travel, like the the, the fact that we can just pay money. We can, we can touch a piece of plastic, which is, say, our cell phones. We can touch our phones in the right spot, arrive at an airport, step into a metal tube, and an hour or two later arrive someplace that's thousands of miles away. Like, I'm sorry. We're living, we are living in the future. Like, air transit is boring and monotonous. Okay, fine. But good Lord, you and I could be in a different continent. We can be on the other side of a gigantic sphere <coughs> hurtling through space right yeah. now. And it takes very little. I mean... Man, we live in a great time with with technology. I agree. But so there's so Marchetti's constant is kind of like an offshoot. Like the the fact that people spend the same amount of time commuting, whether they have to walk there or they have to drive there or they ride their bikes there. Like the, the fact that that constant exists is actually, I think, kind of a, a cousin or an offshoot or a, a specific example of this more general concept of something called Javon's paradox. No, oh, what's this? You ever heard of that? No. Okay, so Javon's paradox is an economic concept where technological progress or more efficient administration of government policy over a given technology, some some improvement in the efficiency of a process or the efficiency of the consumption of a resource, that results in a plummeting cost to produce, manufacture, consume, whatever. It, it makes that technology or that resource a whole lot cheaper. But the consequence of that is an increased demand for that resource. So much so that when so much so that when the resource is consumed, it actually results in like a higher output of of waste than was originally the case or a higher cost of operation than was originally the case. So, so let me let me 
Yeah. Let, let me see if I can clarify okay. this. Here. That is interesting. Yeah. So it's it's based on this this kind of energy policy. This this guy named William Stanley Javons uh, in 1865 was observing that coal burning was much more efficient. It it, it had become much cheaper to burn coal. And so he said the increased efficiency of coal usage actually led to an increased consumption of coal in a wide range of industries in 19th century England. And so he said, you you know, your intuition thinks one thing, but actually technological process, technological processes can't actually be relied on to reduce fuel consumption. Because you think, okay, it takes three tons to of coal to power this neighborhood but then johnny efficiency comes along and says look i've invented a power plant that makes it twice as efficient to use coal and so if you needed three tons before well now suddenly everybody can get their heat and electricity from one and a half tons great isn't that wonderful we're using less coal but the the javon's paradox comes into play when someone says oh my god it's it's twice as cheap to consume coal now. Well, I'm going to go ahead and build a power plant where I was thinking about it before. It was cost prohibitive before this brand new technology came along. But now that it's so much more efficient, I actually want some. And then another neighbor says that. And another neighbor says that. And another neighbor says that. And so suddenly, rather than having one highly inefficient coal plant, you have a bunch of much more efficient coal plants, but the total usage of coal is higher than it would have been with the inefficient technology. So it kind of induces demand in a way that draws on more coal consumption. So obviously there's a lot of implications for energy here. And when it comes to the commute, the connection with the commuting time is like, it's what we said before. It's what Bertrand Russell's original observation was. It was like, well, I have X amount of time that I'm able to dedicate to my commute because I have things I want to do that are outside of work or preparing for work or whatever the case. So if I have a half hour, I could live a 30 minute walk from my job or I could live a 30 minute drive from my job. And then suddenly I'm living out in the suburbs. I'm not near my neighbors. I get to have a nice little garden because I can actually own land. I'm able to raise a family in a quiet, safe neighborhood. I'm able to have a family dog that can run around on a patch of property. And if it means I'm spending the same amount of time driving as I was walking, like, well, I guess I'll have to make up for it with exercise, but really, that's the biggest cost so the 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 paradoxical improvement in our ability to get around isn't resulting in people spending less time traveling it's people are traveling over broader distances using the same amount of time and and so i i just think that's the most fascinating thing and I, i think that's a real challenge that like urban planners and uh, institutions that rely on social capital, that's a real challenge that we kind of have to overcome because the incentives are working against them here. So there is another variable that is specific to the United States that I think is really interesting. And I do buy into the idea, it's not a conspiracy to say that people who benefit from certain industries being successful are pushing things not necessarily in the public eye to have those things be successful in part of our lives. For example, the car industry does not get this want a ton of public transit because the more you drive your car, the more it breaks down, the more there are service industries, you new stuff, you need a new, a new car. So that I don't think I'm being a conspiracy theorist more. A conspiracy theory would be more like, this, these auto people are behind the scenes doing all of this stuff specifically. However, this is an America, specifically an American thing. We drive a ton. Everybody gets it. It's really strange. There was just a viral TikTok going around where somebody from the United Kingdom came to the United States and everyone asked, oh, are you from London? And they were, is it close to London? And they would be like, no, that's not close to London. Or they say something along the lines, it's like an hour and a half from London. It's like, oh, that's close to London. And the Brits are like, no, not even close. And Americans are like, that." an hour and a half, you wouldn't even make it halfway around Atlanta. 
Right. So which is yeah. true for London as well. So the idea is that in America, we love cars so much. It's a status symbol. It has become part of our lives everywhere we go drives. Part of it is that nothing's walkable. Part of it is that public transportation isn't as robust as it needs to be. But part of it is just that it's the most convenient and cheapest way to do things. And that's just how that goes. That being said, I think that there is a fine line in every case is independent of one another. And I think that measuring out genuine demand and using public dollars or in combination with private dollars to get public transit is not quite as clean cut as it would appear. But I do think that the success of automobiles in this country has made this a very weird and specific thing. And I'll get to why in a second. Yeah. The, the, <coughs> the fact that people have a lot of automobiles is it, it's a result of technology. It's a result of technological yeah. improvement. It's a result of just a general appetite for progress. And by the way, you as a, as a enthusiast of medieval studies, I won't say a scholar cause you and I are not scholars, yeah, but as enthusiasts be- of the, the pre enlightenment, kind of way of life we know that progress has not always been a social value that is taken for granted like people have very different ways of viewing society before the existence of like the modern nation state and stuff but we we can get into that later but you know the 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 lobby is a really powerful component to this you're absolutely right i mean uh, so we had we had a buddy who used to live in detroit he spent a couple of years working there in some white collar job and he's like, well, yeah, you know, I was, I was surprised. I thought, you know, there'd be like bus lines or like efficient ways to get around. And so really, other than like the people mover and maybe some bus lines, there's not great ways to get around Detroit. And then he realized, right. oh, well, that makes a lot of sense because that was like the auto manufacturing hub for, you know, it's where Ford and GM are. And right. so when you're building this city, Detroit was once described as like the Paris of the West. Like it used to be like a, like a hugely great city. It was like, a, you know, the, the, the gym city of the Northwest. For a city like that, when you're building and designing it, if you've just invented an automobile that allows people to get around, you need a lot of like public roads. So you want the government to build roads so that people are incentivized to buy your cars. But then when it comes to getting people around en masse, you don't want people to build large public transit systems because then they're less incentivized to buy your car. Like if they can get everywhere they need to go on like a train car or a street car, then they don't need to buy the Model T or the Model A. So the, the, the lobbying component to this can't be can't be understated here. I mean, when I said the incentives are working against people who are trying to bring together stuff like 15-minute cities and trying to reduce car congestion and the amount of time people spend in automobiles, like they really are. And that includes the financial incentives of large corporations who are building products that work in diametric opposition to the interests of like public transit and publicly funded commutes. So that... It's, it, it seems at a certain point obvious, right? Like that, it just makes sense. And it's almost not even illegal. It might be, it might be screwed up, but it probably isn't illegal simply for no other reason than the manner through which that you would lobby Congress. It's there. Anybody can do it. It's just do you have the money and funds and backing for people to do it. So it makes a ton of sense. And it, it goes beyond just manufacturing the cars. I mean, the Route 66 propaganda that stimulated more than the auto manufacturers. That was a bunch of small towns and a way of life and burgers and fries and all of that kind of thing. However, in 2014, uh, there was a study published that proved that not all commuting time is the same. There are a bunch of other studies, but I like this one the most. It was published in December of 2014, and it was by Adam Martin, Yevgeny Goryakin, and Mark Shirky. Good for you. That's that's impressive you pronunciation. Can. Thank you. Pretty good. Yevgeny, is it Yevgeny or Evgeny with the Y and the E? I don't know. I just kind of <laughs> try to like fudge it. It's yeah. one of those things where it's like like if you don't hear yeah. somebody, you kind of try fair. to make a sound that sounds totally. like it could be their name. 
hundred percent. I think that's exactly. Yep. I think that's exactly the way to do that. But they found that active commuting, as a aka driving yourself and public transit, are not the same thing. So, quote: This is the study. Does active commuting improve psychological well-being? Longitudinal evidence from eighteen waves of British household panel survey. So now we're not going to get into the deep nitty gritty of. The survey, because that's really boring, and if you're a stat person, I just said the thing, and you can figure it out yourself. You'll be fine. Um, I think that it's 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 fine. It's a longitudinal study. It's retrospective. That means that it, these data are corollary, corollaries, not causal or whatever. Not causalaries. Not causalaries. What they found was that there were certain psychological symptoms. Here we go. Compared to driving, well-being was higher when using active travel or public transport. The use of active travel reduced the likelihood of two specific GHQ psychological symptoms. I couldn't find those, but it's buried in the study somewhere. But it just psychologically is better. Um, Switching from car driving to active travel improved well-being. Well-being increased with travel time for walkers, but decreased for drivers, which is obvious. Physical exercise is good for you. And this is sort of the thing that I am the most kind of hung up on is that not all commuting is commuting. That when you're on the, especially in this era of smartphones, this came out, smartphones were not new, but they were not what they are now. Now I just expect I could, I can do anything I want in my daily life on my phone. I can take care of business. I can pay bills. I can check out mentally and just enjoy some me time. I can scroll TikTok. I can play chess, whatever I want to do when you're driving. And this is why I think it's really important when you're driving. I think it's the opposite. I think that not only can you not do any of that, but what you're actively doing is horrible. And I've, I've driven with you in Washington DC in the afternoon to say that uh, it's not a good mental thing for you or anyone else that you're driving during commute time. If you, if you go onto some, some corners of the (coughs) the internet, like there are obviously a lot of advocates for this type of kind of 15 minute city transit focused, active commuting focused, kind of approach to city living and like i said i think there are reasonable arguments to be made for that but uh, i think the term that uh, that a lot of these kind of communities have for this is a uh, car brain where it's like okay once you get into an automobile there's like a certain degree of false safety that comes with like being in an enclosed shelter uh, by the way i think movies uh, contribute to that in a significant way if you ever like if a car is ever hit by a bullet i'm gonna tell you something that thin strip of sheet metal between you and a, a live yeah. ammunition coming toward you. Like that is not going to stop the bullet. That's not going to save you. No. This hiding behind a car nonsense, like really truly, unless you're behind like the, the block of the engine where that dense metal configuration could, could kind of stop it. You're not really much safer behind a car as you are in front of it. So this like sense of safety, it's all very much psychological where like yeah. you think you're protected and you think you have this kind of extension of your person that you can monitor and, and, wheeled through traffic but people forget like the the warnings on the side of medications where you're like if you take like a Sudafed or something or like yeah. a cough syrup like do not operate heavy machinery with this at least you know for for a long the longest time when i was a kid like i uncritically assumed that was like don't go like operate a backhoe with yeah. this or don't don't use a crane no heavy machinery refers to your automobile it refers yeah. to your 1500 pound suv hybrid crossover whatever that you're going to hurdle down the interstate at 70 miles an hour so it's a real big thing and it makes people think that they're a little bit safer a little bit more invulnerable than they are uh, but then it becomes like a personal thing because you know you know everybody else on the road is in control of their car so if something happens that like interrupts your flow where you have to like step 
to stop the brakes or decelerate in any way, or you have to like drive out of the way. And then suddenly like people are very quick to say like, Oh no, that's a personal thing. Like this guy cut me off when in really like that is from that person's point of view, like they might just be trying to get over cause they need to like hit the next exit lane or just don't want to be in the lane that they're in anymore. And so because you're behind this kind of protective barrier, you're not you're a little bit more free in your mind to kind of vilify the people around you. And when it's just nonstop people around you, when it's bumper to bumper traffic and it's like a dog eat dog thing. I mean, the, the game theory here is really pitting other drivers against each other. If, if everybody worked together and it was like a fluid and it was like a cooperative exercise, things would go a lot smoother, but that's just so hard to do. It's impossible to do when you have people who are on completely different wavelengths, can't communicate with each other except for like a monotone blaring sound. Yeah. Which is and, not a, a de-escalator. No, no, it's not. And so we, we live by, we happen to live by an intersection that's pretty heavily trafficked. And during the commute times, like in the morning, but especially in the afternoon, uh, and, and especially because there's like, there's a school nearby, we'll hear people who are going through this intersection and like people think they can like catch the light, but there's another light on the end of the block. So they, they end up you know, backing up traffic into this intersection and people will just lay on the horn. And our, my favorite thing to listen to is like every to almost every time that happens, somebody just like honks their horn back. If there's one horn honk, there are multiple horn honks because you know, people are like, no, I'm right. No, I'm right. No, I'm right. No, I'm right. And it's, it's, it's just a very funny, silly thing to me. So I, I, I think the, the car brain mentality is like, it's not, it's not good. And you know, if you, so if I, if I compare my driving experience, which you've talked about and which we're discussing here, yeah. if I compare that to the commute that I had when I was earlier in my career mm-hmm. living in the same city, I was able to take my, you know, like the, the, the train to work, the Metro to work. It was a lot safer than it is now. It was a lot yeah. easier, a lot more reliable than it is now. It's gotten worse over the years. So I don't really do it anymore, but you know, there was a time when I was able to just walk five minutes to the Metro stop, hop on a train for, I don't know, 15 or 20, depending on how busy the, the lines were that day, crack open a book and read a few pages or, you know, listen to a podcast or, you know, watch some videos or, you know, do whatever. I can just relax and have right. some me time. And instead of like, oh, I'm getting to work, blah, blah, blah. I'm thinking about going to work. It's like, no, I get to relax for a little bit before I have to, you know, kind of come out of that world and, and into the professional world. Now it's like, all right, I'm stepping out my door. I'm ready to go do battle on the streets of DC so that I can get safely to my job. And then <laughs> I'm starting the day with more stressors than I am with relaxing. And so I'm freer. I have more control over my time. I'm not, you know, I'm not dependent on a schedule, but you know, the fact that I have to drive, it's like, it's a, uh, it, with great driving power comes great responsibility. And like, I'm, I'm responsible for, managing myself to and from work and sometimes it gets a little bit a little bit tiring and a little bit annoying yeah and i think i also think that the like like we're saying the 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 manner in which you commute matters so much because of like your brain power and like your perceived thing but the other thing that's kind of interesting is that if you do it this way the urban city kind of starts to make quite a bit more sense depending on what's available to you so this new york subway system and fully staffed the dc metro system are the best specifically because in D.C., they don't build tall buildings because of stupid codes or defense or whatever dumb reason that they don't build skyscrapers. They don't build skyscrapers. The rumor is that it's they don't want a building as tall as the Washington Monument. I don't know if that's true, and I don't care. It's not. It's I don't not, care. That's not true. That's not true. Okay. So for those of you who do care, oh. it's the, the code is that you're not allowed to build buildings that are twice the height of the width of the street in front of which they're built. So there are some <sighs> taller buildings. There's some like, you know, 15 or 20 story buildings yeah. that are housing condos or office spaces or whatever. 
downtown. And those are next to or in front of streets that are like four or five lanes wide with, you know, if you include parking, it's a very dumb rule because like they wanted to do it to make, to make DC like feel like a small town and less like a city. <laughs> and that's the dumbest thing in the world because so many Is people that your come voice? here. Well, oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah that was, that was the voice of somebody who uh, just spent a lovely Sunday morning going to a uh, farmer's market because instead of wanting to like improve people's lives and build cheaper housing and make it more accessible for more people uh, to get into a place that's desirable. I think a good city is measured by how many people are selling vegetables outside. Ask me, ask me if I can give you that latte iced. Uh, could you put a little lemon twist in there? Actually, don't. Put, I don't know. I don't know. What people say. close enough. I shouldn't make fun anymore because I'm not very good at it. But mm. the the point is that uh, the, the <coughs> deliberate DC deliberately tried to make itself feel small so that it wouldn't have this like skyscraper mm. looming kind of image. Uh, and really, what it does is crowds people out. And so, and and you know, there, there's another there's another component to all of this too. It's like you know, DC just passed the DC City Council right now. And by the way, if you're listening to this in DC, look mm-hmm. this up because it could be in your interest. DC basically is now subsidizing people to go buy electric bikes. Like they passed this like a month ago where, yeah, like if you, if you apply for this program, DC will pay for a certain amount of money for, to you, for, to you to purchase an electric bike. So if that money goes to an electric bike, the, the, the district of Columbia, AKA my tax dollars are going to go pay for you to ride around in your electric bike. Or to own one. Yeah. To own one, to own (laughs) one. Yeah. So the public policy point of view is like, oh, well, you know, this will get more people biking and have fewer people in cars and it's good for the environment, it's good for health, blah, 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 blah. The problem with that is like, what that does is, I think people don't realize like there are a lot of people who don't live in the city who want to get into the city or who want to commute or who want to participate in stuff that's going on here. And really it's just like, it's a way to exclude people who are kind of like too poor to afford to live in the city center. It's it's really like an elitist thing. And I think people just like prefer not to think about that because they think about all the positives and there are positives to it, but it's like, well, you know, we're effectively using tax dollars to exclude the poor people from getting in even further because we're making it more difficult for automobiles to get around and making the city less accessible to people who don't already live inside. It's like, okay, well, but if we get past all of that, yes, then it's a good then public good policy to take your tax dollars to subsidize my hobby. I'm it's not a, very happy about it. I think it's a dumb idea. And yeah, I, I can't tell I that by your total voice. I can't tell at all. No, I do I think it's 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 a win it's a win the headline policy for for Washington DC to to pull that kind of thing. But where I was going yeah. was that it kind of if you have subways and metros and bus stations and train stations and stuff, it allows people to kind of live a little bit further out because it will connect the far side of one suburb to the center and the center to the other side of the far suburb. And then you don't really have to live uh, where the station is. You just have to be able to get to the station and all of a sudden your commute time goes up. But I I think the interesting question would be like, do we have information, robust actual information from America about how people feel about commute times that where their mind is not occupied and where they're not at risk for being the person who not only could be in serious physical harm, but being the one that, perpetrates the physical harm like when you don't have to do anything when you can mentally check out are you willing to go 15 minutes longer each way you know that's yeah, that's yeah. what's kind of interesting to me i'd be interested in that day i'm sure somebody has done that study yeah. and so it's like okay if 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 marchetti's paradox or marchetti's constant not marchetti's paradox i'm thinking of john's paradox if marchetti's constant holds true for basically everybody the question is would you rather spend a half hour driving to your destination or would you rather spend 15 minutes driving to a train station to take a 15 minute train ride into town I don't know. I mean, the longitudinal study that you were citing seems to suggest that more time spent outside of a car on the commute is better for people's mental health. Mm-hmm. I will say that we do have some data on 
the degree to which Marchetti's constant applies to American commutes. So this is looking at, uh, this is data from the National Equity Atlas. So there's there's a little bit of a, you know, there, there's an angle here. Uh, but the fact is, according to National Equity Atlas, the average commute time for all workers has increased from 1990 to 2020. So there's a 30 year span. In 1990, it, the average commute time for all workers was about 22 minutes, which Seems pretty good. It comes in under Marchetti's paradox, or Mar- Marchetti's constant, rather. In 2020, the average amount of time was 27 minutes. And in fact, that number has increased again, uh, but according to the U.S. Census Bureau, in 2020, or 2019, it was 27.6 minutes. Uh, and then in 2021, uh, that number continued to increase. It's now right around 28 minutes. Compared, So you, it doesn't seem like a big difference. Like, well, what's the difference between 22 and 28? Like, well... It's a little bit, but that's a significant percentage. And we're back to what we discussed at the very beginning yes. of like the top of the show. It's like, well, for every, right. for every six minutes you spend in the car going on a one-way trip, like, all right, well, those there's 12 minutes a day. If you do that five times. Like there's an hour a week, an additional hour a week on average people are spending. If you do that for 50 weeks out of the year, like, well, yeah, I mean, you're, you're spending two full additional days commuting and you're already is- spending a good chunk of time commuting because if you figure 44 minutes a day, with uh, with a 22 minute commute well that's ballooned up to you know 54 minutes a day so i, I think I, I think there's something to be said for that and you know you you, you gotta think that the hypothesis of this show maybe ought to be mm. that if you were to cut that in half with more people driving to train stations for half of their commute more people would be happier violence would decrease the outward signs of, of mental health and like road rage incidents would probably decrease traffic might be less congested. I, the hypothesis for the show maybe should be that that would be an improvement in basically every available metric. Yeah. And it creates demand too, which gives people jobs, but also decreases the highways, which truckers and everyone else would like and decrease maintenance on cars and highways. What's that? It it would, you know, theoretically less usage would mean, less maintenance on highways and sure. less maintenance on automobiles because the roadways aren't as bad. But then again, we run into Javon's paradox where it's like, oh, nobody's driving anymore. So then everybody starts to drive. Right. I was just going to say that. And then everybody, all of a sudden, the trains are too full and then they're empty and then they're too full and then they're empty. It's sort of like what Google Maps is. Everybody who listens to this program knows that Google, Google Maps won't give everyone the reroute option. It wants to disperse it evenly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think Yogi, Berry, Yogi Berra summed up all yep. of this the best. So, well, yeah, it's too crowded. Nobody goes there anymore. Nobody goes there anymore. It gets late out there. It gets late early out there. <laughs> when you get to the fork in the road, take it. What time is it? You mean now? You mean now? <laughs>